This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. I am Gnomewise. I am Gonora. I am Iolite. I am Dexa. I am Grail. And I am Versus You. I am Versus You. And I'm Versus You. I am Versus You. And I'm Versus You. Casually Hardcore. Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. GMT. Only on vtwproductions.com. My name is Vic Mignana. I'm a voice actor for a lot of animated series and video games, but not today. Today, I am one of many of you. When I was a little boy, I fell in love. <laughs> I can't believe I just did that. I fell in love with a show that inspired me in ways I could never have imagined. And uh, so this is a, a special privilege, a privilege of my life to make this introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm Phoenix Comic Con welcome to the man that Gene Roddenberry called the conscience of Star Trek. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Nimoy. Thank you very much. Thank you. So emotional. <clears throat> Thank you. It's um, a little difficult with a crowd this size to, to, uh, to have you asking questions verbally, so I'm going to take them mentally, okay? <clears throat> Somebody's wondering about... Um, Somebody's asking, <laughs> is it true that William Shatner tried to drown you when you were making Star Trek IV? <laughs> uh, he is competitive. I don't know. You have to decide for yourselves. Uh, uh, what did I think of... What did I think of Anna Torv's, Im Anna Torv's imitation of me in Fringe? Oh, she was very good. She was very good, yeah. Yeah. Uh, am I doing a voice in um, 
the new Transformers film. Yes, I am. Yes. The voice of Sentinel Prime. And uh, what's the status of the next Star Trek movie? Uh, I, um, I believe they'll start filming sometime later this year. And... Uh, and uh, you can take one more. Uh, oh, somebody's asking about Bruno Mars. Have you seen the? Yeah. You like the video? Yeah. Uh, there's a Bruno. I did a Bruno Mars video. You're right. Yeah. And uh, and it's out. You can check it out on YouTube. Yeah. Check it out on YouTube. I had a lot of, yeah. He's an interesting talent. Um, okay, so, um, you know, my, uh, my parents came to the United States about 100 years ago as immigrants. Uh, they arrived in Boston. They were aliens, and they became citizens. And I was born in Boston, a citizen. I went to Hollywood, and I became an alien. <laughs> and uh, Star Trek went on the air. Can you believe it? In 1966. <laughs> 1966. 45 years ago. And uh, I wasn't really prepared for it. I, I, uh, I didn't know how to prepare for it. I, I had been acting in films and television for about 15 years, but I had never had a character that had the impact that, uh, that uh, Spock was going to have on an audience. I had no idea what to anticipate. I hadn't even bothered to change my telephone number. My phone number was in the Los Angeles telephone directory. <laughs> you could call me if you wanted to. A lot of people did. And, and uh, it took a little getting used to. There were, there were fans waiting outside the studio gate at the end of the day, waiting to follow you home and, and rip the shrubbery off, leaves off your shrubbery. And this came from Leonard Nimoy's house, this piece of leaf. Yeah. You sh can you prove it? No, but I, I was there. I saw him go in the door from his house, yeah. So it, was, it got a little crazy, and um, I had to be snuck in and out of restaurants and theaters and so forth. So I had an invitation to go. Some of you probably heard me tell this story before, but uh, uh, bear with me. Uh, I had an invitation to go to speak at a college in Billings, Montana. And were you there? It was a long time ago. Anyway, uh, I, I decided to go because I thought it would be peaceful, get away from Hollywood. And, um, and I went to Billings, Montana to speak at this college. And I, I landed at the airport. They drove me to a, a local motel. And I, I was in the room five minutes unpacking when the phone rang. I couldn't imagine who could be calling me. But, uh, what are you doing? I tell you, they sneak right in on you, you know? So uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up and answered it, hello. And a young female voice said, hi, is this Mr. Nemo? And I said, yes, it is. Oh, oh, my God, oh. Oh, I can't believe it. I, oh, wow. I, oh, yeah, hi. I said, she said, we're such big Star Trek fans. I said, who are you? 
She said, my name is Sally. I said, where are you calling me from? She said, St. Louis. <laughs> How did you find me? She said, I heard you were going to be speaking at Billings, and I called all the hotels and motels. There's only three. So, Sally, thank you very much. I appreciate, I appreciate the call. I, there were some people waiting for me, and I, I, I've got to go now. So goodbye, and keep watching the show, and thank you very much. And I hung up. I, I finished packing. I was heading for the door. Not three minutes later, the phone rang again. I picked it up, and another female voice, oh, hi, is this Mr. Nimoy? Yes. Oh, wow, I got him. I got him on the phone. I got him. Who are you? My name is Mary. Mary, where are you calling me from? She said, Denver. <laughs> Mary, how did you find me? She said, my friend Sally called me from St. Louis. <laughs> It was great. It was great. Uh, I grew up in Boston in a, a tenement neighborhood, and uh, and this is if this thing is working. Yeah, that's uh, that's the front of the building where I grew up. And the lady on the, on the left. No, 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 don't do that. Don't go away. <laughs> the lady on the left is my grandmother, and uh, I lived in that building for eight, the first 18 years of my life, and. Uh, these were some of the guys I used to hang around with on the, on the corner. Um, you had to have a white shirt to be in this gang. <laughs> That's me on the, on the far left. Um, I, was, I was lucky to grow up in Boston. It was a great city. Uh, lots of academia and uh, lots of museums and a lot of art, theaters and music and what have you. And we, uh, very close to where I lived, about two blocks away, there was what, what we call a settlement house. Five-story brick building with all kinds of classes. Uh, designed for immigrants to, uh, it was built in the 1910, 1520s. Uh, immigrant people could go there to learn various things you needed to learn, including English classes, because most of the immigrants spoke Italian or, or Yiddish or various foreign languages. And um, they had a theater. They had a sports program and a science program, but they also had a beautiful little theater. And I, I first stepped out on that stage when I was eight years old and I'm, uh, in a production of Hansel and Gretel, and I played Hansel. And this theater had a beautiful um, um, embroidered curtain. And it was a, a forest scene. And at the bottom, in, in very beautiful Gothic letters, it said, act where you're parked, there all honor lies. And I took that very seriously. I thought, hey, that's very important to, to, do, honorable, to do an honorable job in, in, in the part that you play. So it made an impression on me. And I, I continued to do children's theater there until when I was 17, I was cast for the first time in a, a, an adult production of a play called Awake and Sing. This was a play about a Jewish family in the Bronx, very much like my own Jewish family in Boston. There were three generations living in an apartment together, the grandparents, parents, and kids. And in this play, I'm playing the 17-year-old juvenile. I was 17 myself, so I really very strongly identified with the character. And this kid in the play was having the same concerns that I was having. How do you... How do you find out who you're supposed to be in the world? How do you find the right job for yourself? How do you go to the right school? How do you find the right girl for yourself? How, how do you build a life? And this kid was going through these issues, and so was I. And I thought, if I could do this kind of work for the rest of my life, helping people to understand their lives, illuminating an audience's, illuminating lives for people in the audience, I would consider it very important work, and I would consider myself blessed 
to be able to do that. So I decided to be an actor. And I went home and I said that to my folks, I'm going to be an actor. Well, <laughs> it didn't go down so great, you know. My parents were immigrants from Russia. My father was a barber, decent guy, stood on his feet and cut hair for maybe 65 or 70 years of his life, and worked hard, very unsophisticated. I said, Dad, I'm going to be an actor. He said, you'll be hanging around with gypsies and vagabonds. I thought, okay, you know, all right. <laughs> That's the way it has to be, you know. And then he gave me the only advice my dad ever gave me. He was very serious. He said, learn to play the accordion. <laughs> you can always make a living with an accordion. <laughs> I didn't take his advice. Maybe I should have. I don't know. The last movie that I saw before I left Los Angeles to move to California, the last movie I saw was Shakespeare's Henry V directed by and starring Laurence Olivier, considered the greatest actor of our generation. <laughs> wonderful movie, wonderful movie. And uh, there comes a moment in the movie where Henry is uh, with his troops. They're about to go into battle tomorrow morning. It's the nighttime. Tomorrow morning, they're gonna fight the French. And they're vastly outnumbered. The French have a lot more soldiers than the English army does. Henry's concerned about the emotional condition of his troops, so he goes out in disguise, kind of hooded, like Spock did in Star Trek III. And, uh, and he goes out amongst the troops to listen to what they're talking about. And he hears somebody say, I wish we had more men. And he says, what's he that wishes so, my, my cousin, Westmoreland? Nay, nay, cousin, he says, wish not one man more. If we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss. But if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. And I got a chill when I heard that. I thought, wow, there's that word again. Then he goes on to say, by Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desire. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. I took that very seriously. I thought honor is going to be an important thing in my life. I've got to pay attention to that. It means something to me. There's a reason it keeps coming at me like this. And I took that in and held it. So in search of honor, I got on a train. I went to California to that great citadel of honor known as Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I got off the train, I moved into a rooming house, got myself some 8 by 10 glossy photographs, went up and down Sunset Strip where all the agencies were, knocking on doors trying to get an agent. And before too very long, um, a matter of months, I found myself on a soundstage acting in a movie. And I thought, wow, here I am. There's a camera, the sound department, costume, makeup, sets, crew. I thought, wow, I'm in a movie. It's great. I thought this is going to rocket me to stardom. And uh, to this day, I can't quite figure out why it didn't quite work out that way. It was called a wonderful project called Zombies of the Stratosphere.
There we were. There we were. There were, I think, four of us. We landed in a spaceship that staggered across the screen and left a trail of smoke. And we stole a pickup truck and a couple of Colt 45 revolvers and announced we're going to take over Earth. That's me. <laughs> and that job was followed by another great hit, Attack of the Brain Eaters. That was my second job. So my career looked like it was quickly swirling around the drain hole and going down the drain. I went to work at various jobs. I sold life insurance. I sold vacuum cleaners. I worked in an ice cream parlor. I, I serviced fish tanks in people's homes and doctors' offices. Here comes the fish doctor, they used to say. I heard that too many times. And then I found a two-year job in the United States Army. <laughs> and there I was standing in front of a desk, a corporal sitting behind the desk at a typewriter, if you remember typewriters. And, uh, and he said to me, what do you do in civilian life? I said, I'm an actor. And he said, oh, tell me what I might have seen you in. <laughs> Zombies of the stratosphere. <laughs> click, 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 click. Infantry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I came out of the Army two years later. By that time, I was married. I had a child. I had another one on the way, and I had to go to work immediately to produce some income uh, before I could uh, get my acting career going again. And uh, one night, I was driving a taxi in West Los Angeles, took a job cab driving, and I got a call to go pick up Mr. Kennedy at the Bel Air Hotel. And being from Massachusetts, the Kennedy name meant something to me. This was 1956. And uh, the man that came out to get into my cab was Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. And uh, he was not known nationally. Later that year, he made a, 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 an important speech at the Democratic Convention. He got some national attention. But when he stepped into my cab, hardly anybody knew him in California. And I said, how are things in Massachusetts, Senator? And he, got, he, he was interested. Oh, it's great. Somebody recognized him. Are you from Massachusetts? Yes. Where? Boston. Where in Boston? I said, the, the West End. He knew the area very well. He had a, an office just about two or three blocks from where I lived. On Be He was on Beacon Hill. And uh, he said, what are you doing out here? And here I am driving the taxi. <laughs> I said, I'm an actor. <laughs> he said, a lot of competition in your business. I said, yes. He said, just like mine. Keep in mind, he said, there's always room for one more good one. And I took that in and held on to it. It meant a lot to me to keep that in mind. Four years later, he was elected president, and three years after that, he was gone. Anyway, uh, these are great memories, and I'm, I, I hold them dearly. I'm, I was invited to come out to Republic Studios for, an, for a, 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 a meeting with a producer, and he said to me, do you ride? And I said, no, not a car. He said, do you ride? Horses. We do westerns. Well, I made a mistake. I didn't, hadn't learned yet. I said, no, I don't write. He said, you better learn because we do Westerns. And we, I've learned very quickly that when you're an actor and you go on an audition, whatever they ask you, can you do, you say yes. You know. <laughs> can you drop off a ship like a hundred feet into the water and swim 300 yards, kill a shark and climb back onto the ship? Yes. <laughs> done it, done it many times. Yeah. <laughs> 
I learned to ride. I worked in Gunsmoke. I worked in Wagon Train. I worked in Rawhide with Clint Eastwood. I worked in Bonanza. That's the army. The, the kid in the army, yeah. I think the only one that, who looks authentic in, in a Western is DeForest Kelly. Uh, <laughs> Cowboy Shatner? I don't think so. <laughs> and the, Jimmy Dewan is a laughing Indian? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's, there I am. I, I, I did a lot of, in, I, I played some bad Indians. I mean, I, mean I, I don't think I did them badly. They were bad people, you know. I played Indians so bad, Indians wouldn't play them. You know. Anyway, it was, it was a way of learning and a way of making a living. And, and then in 1960, I acted in a play called Death Watch, which was a very successful play in Los Angeles. And a lot of the industry people came to see this. And uh, then we made the film in 1964. And uh, a lot of the industry people came, and I started working very steady after that. The man on, on the right in the uniform is Robert Ellenstein, who was I was able to hire later to play the, the president of the Federation in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And, and this was the play called Death Watch, and, and um, after that, I, it was a big career lift. I, I, was, uh, I was in Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Dr. Kildare, Perry Mason, and eventually a series called The, the Lieutenant, <clears throat> produced by Gene Roddenberry. And, uh, and now after trains and horses, we're talking about starships. So, um, I got a call one day after I'd done this episode in The Lieutenant, my agent called me and said, Gene Roddenberry saw the footage and he's interested in you for a, uh, for a pilot, for a television series, a science fiction that he's going to make. And uh, he'll be in touch. And I thought, well, okay, you know, I've been working pretty good by then. So I, I, I kind of took it with a grain of salt. There's a lot of maybes. And maybe he's going to cast me in this, maybe he's going to make the pilot. Maybe he'll cast me in it. Maybe the pilot sells. Maybe the, the network will keep me in the show. Maybe it'll get picked up for more than three or four episodes. There's a lot of maybes. But when he called a couple months later and asked for, for a meeting, I went and I thought, okay, now he's going to audition me or whatever. When I got there, he walked me around the various departments. He showed me the sets being built. He showed me the costumes being designed. He showed me the props, the, the tricorder and the, the communicator, the phaser, and, uh, and uh, the makeup department. And uh, he said, you'll be wearing pointed ears. And I thought, oh. <clears throat> anyway, I realized that he was, he was now selling me on this job. I, I wasn't there to be auditioned. I, I had this job if I wanted it. All I had to do was keep my mouth shut and I could go to work, you know. <laughs> so um, it was a little scary, a little scary. Uh, but what, what attracted me, I mean, the ears and all of that, you know, it could have been a bad joke. But what attracted me was when he said, this character is going to be a Vulcan from another, the planet Vulcan. He's going to look alien, going to look different. He's going to have a human mother and a Vulcan father. And he's going to have an internal life that consists of a battle between his emotions and his logic. And he's going to try to live as a Vulcan to suppress the emotional side of his, of his um, uh, persona and live as a, as a Vulcan, unemotionally. And I thought, that's, that's an interesting challenge for an actor, and it sounds like it might be an interesting role to play. So I took the job, and, and we went to work. And this is one of the first photographs that was ever taken of us. Yeah. 
This was, this was actually shot summer of 1966 before we, went, we even went on the air. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but somebody said, go outside there, somebody wants to talk to you guys. We walked out and somebody took this photograph. And, um, and this is in the makeup department, D. Kelly in the chair. And I've got my makeup on, the eyebrows and the ears and so forth, but I'm obviously still wearing my civilian clothes. And the work was intense. Once in a while, we had a laugh like this. <laughs> the work was very intense. I was there 12 hours a day. I got there in the makeup chair at 6.30 in the morning and walked out of the studio, drove out at 6.30 at night every day. Uh, the days were long. The, the work was hard. Uh, it took a lot of energy. In the afternoons at 3 or 4 o'clock, in order to stay sharp and on my game, I started gulping honey to give myself an extra surge of energy. Uh, we did some very, very interesting episodes, as I'm, I'm sure you know and understand. Um, we had an episode where, uh, where Kirk uh, was split into two personalities. Um, I think it was called The Enemy Within, a malfunction in the transporter. He comes up as, as, a, as a kind of a meek, mild-mannered Kirk, and then he comes up as a nasty Kirk. So there's the, it's our version of the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde story. And there comes a moment in, in, the, in the story where the evil Kirk has a, has a phaser and he's going to shoot the, the mild Kirk. And if he does that, we'll never get Humpty Dumpty back together again. <laughs> so, and, and, the, and the writer had written that Spock comes up behind the bad guy and hits him over the head with the butt of his phaser. And I said to the director, I don't think that's appropriate for, for the 23rd century in science fiction you know, if we were doing gun smoke, that might work, you know. So what do you want to do? And I said, well, Spock is a graduate of the Vulcan Institute of Technology. And he took courses in human anatomy. And Vulcans have a certain kind of energy on their fingertips, which if applied appropriately to the pressure points on a human would render him unconscious. The director said, oh, really? You know. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You watch this, watch the way this works. And I came up behind Bill Shatner and I did that. And Bill went like that and dropped to the floor and that's the way the Vulcan neck pinch was born. <laughs> it was a big success. A lot of people asked me to teach them how to do it so they could do it to their kids. <laughs> and we came to uh, an episode that was a very beautiful script written by a wonderful science fiction writer named Theodore Sturgeon, a script called Amok Time, which was really, really a very poetic, wonderful script. And uh, it was an interesting script for the Spock character because we were going to go to Vulcan for the first time, to Spock's home planet, and we are going to see other Vulcans for the first time. Spock was the only Vulcan we had seen up to that point. And uh, Spock had to get home to fulfill a marriage, marriage betrothal. Spock was in heat. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Happens once every seven years, you know that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and quite an event, actually. Well worth waiting for. Uh, so we get to the planet and there's the three of us, uh, DeForest Kelly and Bill and myself, and, and uh, we're, Spock has, is going to be married. And the lady that's going to conduct the, the marriage ceremony is being carried in a sedan chair at the head of a procession. And we learn that she's a very, very important person. She's the matriarch of the Vulcan planet, a character named Tipao, played by a wonderful Viennese actress named Celia Lofsky. And uh, they set her down. <clears throat> I'm to approach her. 
And she says, welcome home, Spock. And I'm supposed to say something like, it's nice to be here. I don't remember exactly what I was supposed to say. But I, I said to the director, I think that we should, we should have something that Vulcans do when they greet. I'm looking for ways to build interesting aspects of the Vulcan culture. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, humans, we shake hands with each other when we meet. Uh, Asians bow to each other. Military people salute each other. Uh, Vulcans should have a greeting of some kind. He said, what do you want to do? Well, I reached back into my, my childhood as a Jewish kid in Boston going to a synagogue on the high holidays with my family. I'm sitting with my grandfather and my father and my brother in the men's section. <clears throat> and there comes a point in the service where the Kohanim, they're called, they're the members of the priestly tribe of the Hebrews, get up to bless the congregation. And the blessing is one that we know from the Old and the New Testament. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his countenance to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his graciousness unto you and grant you peace. So these guys are up there, and they're going to bless the congregation. And my dad says to me, don't look. So I'm eight years old, and there's something strange is going to happen. So I, I snuck a peek. And these, these gentlemen up there are they're in, in a kind of an ecstasy, almost like a revival meeting. They're shouting this prayer, chanting it and shouting it in Hebrew, five or six of them. And I snuck this peek, and what I saw looked something. Uh, this is a demonstration of me showing you what they looked like. It was like that. <laughs> They've got their heads covered with their prayer shawls and their hands out over the congregation, towards the congregation like that, see. And it's, it's a magical thing. Every time I do that, flash bulbs go off. Yeah. <laughs> Can't stop it. Can't stop it. And uh, I had no idea why they were doing that, but, I, but it kind of struck me something interesting was happening. So I immediately started to work to learn to be able to do that with my hands. And I, I spent years of diligent practice and self-denial <laughs> to master that. I could get to the point I could do it right hand, left hand, anytime, anyplace. I could do it. I never knew it would come in handy someday, but it... anyway, I said to the director, maybe Vulcans do that. He said, okay, okay. <laughs> I learned later that this is the shape of the letter Shin, which is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is the first letter in the word Shalom, which means peace. It's also the letter, first letter in the word Shaddai, which is a name for the Almighty. Now, I learned much later that you're not supposed to look because the legend is that during that blessing, the Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God, comes into the sanctuary to bless the congregation. And that's a deity, and she gives off the light of a deity, and you dare not see that. It might be too powerful. To, it could injure you badly and even worse. So you protect yourself by covering your eyes and not looking. But I snuck a peek, and I survived. I was okay. <laughs> anyway... Uh, the director said to Sylvia the actress, Leonard is going to do that as he approaches you, and you'll return the gesture. The only problem was that she had not spent the years of diligent practice and self-denial that I had. <laughs> so we had a problem with her, but we managed. She, she held her right hand in shape with her left hand like that, and she held it out of sight of the camera. So she was ready. When I raised my hand, she raised hers, and that's how we got it into the show. This photograph was taken. Yeah. 
This photograph was actually taken that day, on the set that day, the first time this gesture went into Star Trek. And within a few days after that show aired, it was coming back at me on the streets. <laughs> Kids, truck drivers, police, waiters in restaurants. Hey, Spock, hey, how are you? It was great. This is a uh, photograph of my son and myself, my son Adam. He came to visit me one day on the set and they snuck him off into the makeup department. They put the ears on him and they sent him out on the set <laughs> to surprise me. Fan mail. The fan mail was coming in sacks. It started out little packages and I was signing every, every uh, uh, photograph and signing notes and responding to each letter. And then it was coming in, in sacks, and I, I, I couldn't handle it on my own. I needed help, and it was getting to be expensive because the, the postage and the photographs and so forth. So I asked Desilu for some help, and they, and they gave me a, a, um, uh, a stipend of $100 per episode to pay for the handling of the fan mail. And then I got this, um, this, I'm talking to a couple of people here. <laughs> Hi. Hi. You want to talk to a couple of people? Say, say hello, honey. <laughs> That's my wife, Susan. Can you believe it? Hi, sweetheart. Okay. If she says, have fun, everybody, I'll talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> so, I got this memo. <laughs> that's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> I got this memo from the, uh, from the business affairs people at the studio. They said, Dear Leonard, for the past several weeks, we've been consulted with respect to the operation in regard to your personally handling your fan mail. And we have iterated ourselves with regard to the agreement that was made with respect to our obligations to you in this connection. For purposes of clarification to you and others receiving copies of this memo, I would like to iterate the agreement that was made. We agree, in addition to your compensation, to pay you $100 toward your secretary and equipment needs for your personally handling the fan mail. It is not intended, nor was it specifically agreed, that we would furnish you with pens, pencils, etc., <laughs> which we assumed you would furnish yourself. So um, on the next day, I, you know, I thought a memo like that calls for an answer. And uh, the next day I sent a memo and I said, thank you very much for taking the time to send me the memo clarifying our agreement as regards to fan mail supplies, etc. I hasten to assure you that we will no longer need to make requests in this area for some time. Since my secretary and I have gone to various offices around the studio and managed to steal all the pens and pencils we need. <laughs> well, we had three seasons, as you know. People are always surprised when I say we only lasted three seasons. People are shocked. They think we've had many more seasons than that. No. Three seasons. The third season was very tough. Uh, our, our good producers were gone, the writers were gone, we had new staff, and they didn't quite get the show as well as the first people had, and, and, um, and the show stumbled to a close, and we were canceled at the end of the three seasons. And then I was hired 
onto Mission Impossible. And I, I had a, yeah, yeah. I had, I had some fun for a while. That's me with Leslie Ann Warren in one of the episodes. And, and, uh, and I, I got to play this magician in, in Mission Impossible. I always wanted to be a magician as a kid, and here I was a magician on Mission Impossible. I had a good time doing it. Uh, it was interesting work. Uh, I got to play European dictators, South American dictators, Asian dictators. Uh, and then after a while, I got to be, again, European dictators, South American dictators. And I got kind of bored, frankly. And I said, I think I've had enough of this. Please let me out. And they did. And, uh, and then I went back to school to study photography. I began, yeah, I began to wonder if I might change careers because I had had more success than I ever expected as an actor. And I thought there's a career there for me if I wanted, but I want to explore this photography thing, which I had loved since I was a teenager. So I went to school and I studied photography and I started carrying cameras around. And so this was some of the early work that I did. That's a picture of my parents that I shot at that time. And very indicative of their nature. Uh, my mother was a very curious person. She would stop to look to see what was on the other side of that wall. My dad just kept right on walking. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is a, uh, a self-portrait that I did which is now in the permanent collection at the Los Angeles County Museum. I have work in various museums around the country and in galleries around the country and shows at various times. And, um, and then I went, to, uh, I went to Spain to act in a way. I decided to, to, to stay with the acting career. Uh, I realized that I didn't want to do commercial photography. I didn't want to be shooting uh, fashion photography and cosmetics and that kind of thing. I wanted to do what's known as fine art photography, which translates to you cannot make a living at it. So, so I stuck with the acting career. I went off to Spain to act in a, in a western called Catlo with Yul Brynner. And um, this was me on the set with the director, Sam uh, Waterman, uh, on the left. And, and then um, carrying cameras in Spain. This was some of the photography work that I was doing at the time, landscapes and so forth. A street in Almeria on the southern coast of Spain where we were filming. And then I went on tour uh, in a, a production of, of Fiddler on the Roof. I played Tevye. That's me on the East Coast doing Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. And, and, then, I went to, um, and then I went to Israel to work with Ingrid Bergman. This was interesting. Uh, this was a movie about Golda Meir, the lady who was the uh, president of, of uh, Israel. And uh, I was asked to play this character who was her husband. And when I was first was told about the role, I thought, I, don't, I wasn't terribly attracted to it. He was a kind of a, a kind of tag-along kind of guy. Nice man, I'm sure. She was the power in the relationship. She said, I want to go over there and become part of that new nation. And he said, well, gee, things are nice here in Milwaukee, you know. And she said, well, I'm going. He said, okay, if you're going, I'll go too. And uh, I was asked to play this role, and I said, I, I, don't, I don't know that I know how to... Uh, how to enter into that character. I don't know if I could figure out a way to play that character. And then they said, well, that's too bad because you'd be playing opposite Ingrid Bergman. I said, oh, I might be able to figure this out, you know. <laughs> one of the great actresses in films and one of my, uh, one of my favorite all-time movies, Casablanca. She was that wonderful leading lady in Casablanca and so many other great films, great actress, and I got to act with her in Israel. It was a great thrill. And then... Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
with uh, Donald, Donald Sutherland and Jeff Goldblum. And, uh, and then to Morocco, where I played uh, Samuel, and here I am anointing David, uh, the new uh, uh, king of, of the Israelites. So I, I had some interesting work to do. And, and then uh, in 1977, I was on Broadway uh, for the second time, this time in a production of Equus, great play, uh, 16 weeks of a great thrill doing that role. I had a wonderful time doing it. And while I was doing it, uh, I heard about this great new film, very exciting, big hit that had just opened, big crowds and very successful film. And I went to a theater in the afternoon. I was doing the play at night. Went to a theater in the afternoon in Times Square. A gigantic theater packed with people screaming and cheering and having a wonderful time. They're watching a movie called Star Wars. <laughs> All through the 70s, there was no Star Trek production being done. Um, there was a hunger for Star Trek. Star Trek was very popular in reruns, and a lot of people wanted Star Trek to be produced, but there was no Star Trek being made for various reasons, and probably because the studio didn't think there was any money in it. You know? when, when they saw this big hit that George Lucas had with Star Wars, and I, I'm in the theater watching this gigantic hit, and I thought to myself, I think I'm going to be getting a call from Paramount Pictures pretty soon. <laughs> And sure enough, they called us, and uh, we went to work to make a movie. And there's the cast assembled. <coughs> Robert Wise, the director on the left in the shirt, and Gene Roddenberry on the right, the producer, writer, and the rest of us ready to go to work. And uh, this was on one of the production days as Bob Wise directing again and Gene, Gene up top. And we made the movie, and um, it, was, it was large. We had a big budget, and it was, the movie was large. I don't think it was great, but it was large. And uh, we had great shots of the ship going by like that. And then there was another great shot of the ship going by like that. Anyway. And it was Star Trek, the motion picture. There was no plan for any more. I mean, it was, that was, we made the movie. So I thought, okay, well, that's done. And uh, then I got a call, and I was asked, would I be interested in doing another Star Trek movie and for much lower budget? And I thought, oh, I want to squeeze this, this apple once more and get a little more juice out of it. And, and they said, how would you like to have a great death scene? And I thought, well, okay, this is probably going to be the last movie. Why not go out in a blaze of glory, <laughs> saving the crew and the ship? And we, we did that. And I uh, went to see that movie with an audience for the first time. And uh, we come near the end of the film. And um, Scotty calls, uh, Kirk calls down to Scotty in the engine room. Scotty, we need four minutes. We need warp speed in four minutes or we're all dead. No answer from Scotty in the engine room. And Spock gets up, goes out to the elevator door, and I know where he's going. <laughs> he's going down to the engine room to save the ship and die. Yeah. And I, I really didn't want to watch this, but I, I thought I'd better sit right here in my seat or people, if I leave, people think I hate the movie. And it was a good movie. It was a good movie, very good movie. And I was beginning to think I made a terrible mistake letting myself die in this movie. You know. 
And uh, so we see the death scene, which was very moving. And then um, there's the eulogy, and Spock's tube is going down the rail, and Kirk is saying, for all the souls that I've met in my travels, his was the most human. <laughs> I love that. And uh, so they shoot this, the tube out into space and it lands on the Genesis planet. And then we see some footage that was never in the original script. We see the camera panning, panning through some foliage and, and some mist and it comes to rest on guess what? The tube containing Spock's remains. And I thought, I think I'm going to be getting a call from Paramount Pictures very soon. <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, they called, and we made uh, the next one was Star Trek Three, which I directed, and then they asked me to do another one, and I did Star Trek Four, and uh, yeah. This moment in Star Trek Four came because one day when we were preparing the script. I was walking down Columbus Avenue in, in New York on a, on a hot summer day, and suddenly there's this loud, very loud blast of bad rock music. And I take a look, and here's this punker carrying this big box on his shoulder, and he's got this thing blasting at, at, a, at a, an 11, you know? And I mean, just destroying everybody's tranquility on the street. Everybody's angry, including me. And I thought, if I could pinch his brains out, I would, you know? <laughs> So I put, that's how I got my, my back, uh, Adam. I, I put this in the movie, and, and uh, one of my favorite moments. And the, the movie was obviously, uh, it's one of my favorite of the, all the Star Trek movies. I really enjoyed making it. We had a great time. Thank you. And then I directed Three Men and a Baby. I didn't know he directed that, did he do? Yeah. Yeah, Selleck and Gutenberg and Danson and a miraculous baby. We had a wonderful time making that movie. We had a great time. <coughs> John Delancey and I got together for some projects called Alien Voices. We did some radio performances of various science fiction classics and had a great time. So all I wanted was to make a living as an actor I did set out to, uh, to, to be one more good one. I believed in being a good one if you're going to do it. Let's, let's be as good as we possibly can. I had a great, great run. And honor, well, I do have four Emmy nominations and several Lifetime Achievement Awards and four honorary doctorates and plenty of popularity. And <laughs> <laughs> It's great, it's, it's been a great, great run. Popularity is great, but Victor Hugo reminds us that popularity is the crumbs of greatness. So, <laughs> keep your head in check. And uh, do I have an identity issue? Of course, if somebody yells Spock on the street, it's my head that turns, you know. <clears throat> I have walked alone seeking answers. I have lived alone chasing dreams. 
I have tried to prove my worth to worthless judges. I have cried my pain in silent screams. I have been sometimes served a touch of kindness. I have wandered in golden fields of grace. I have been released by honest laughter. I have touched the western wall of the holy place. I have soared alone above the cloud heads. I have walked the deep, dark tunnels of the earth. I have dined with mystics and with prophets. I have heard the pain of woman giving birth. I have been sought after as a teacher. I have been refused the laurel wreath. I've heard the thunder blast of sunrise. I have watched the final touch of death. I have played the rules set by the master, though often I didn't understand the game. I have worn more masks than I remember. I have been a face without a name. And when, like you, I ask the final question, who on earth am I supposed to be? I always come full circle to the answer, me, only me, always me. I was at a party uh, a while back, a bunch of Hollywood people, crowded room. I felt a pair of hands on my shoulders from behind, and a voice whispered in my ear, I recognize you. Yeah, I had your ears fixed. <laughs> and it was John Wayne. <laughs> I believe in living a creative life. I believe in bringing more to the party. I believe in showing up and using both sides of my brain. I believe in being passionate about my work. In recent years, photography has been my passion for the last 14, 15 years. My work is now in permanent museum collections around the country. Uh, I published a book called Shekhinah, which is based on this symbol, and it's about the feminine uh, aspect of God. And I published a book called The Full Body Project, which is, about, which is about body image in our culture, The Full Body Project. And most recently, I did a project called Secret Selves. I read a story in, on the internet a while ago that I found quite intriguing. Uh, Aristophanes, famous uh, uh, playwright and philosopher in ancient Greece, uh, said at a, at a symposium conducted by Sophocles, a symposium where a lot of guys sitting around drinking a lot of wine, talking about humanity, and, um, and the subject of human angst came up, human anxiety, a human sense of being uh, sort of incomplete somehow, something missing, something you want in your life that's not quite complete or there. And Aristophanes had an explanation. He said, this was a very fanciful idea of his. He said, humans at one time, were, we were double people. We all had, we, all, we were all uh, uh, attached, double, back to back, in various combinations. And, and humans became very powerful. And the gods became angry. And they sent Zeus to solve the problem, which he did by taking a big sword and splitting everybody in two and sending them on their separate paths. And ever since then, said Aristophanes, Humans have been looking for the other part of themselves in the hopes of reintegrating to make themselves feel whole again. And that's the reason, he said, we, are, we have angst, we have this anxiety, this sense of being incomplete. So I did a project called Secret Selves based on that story. I photographed 100 people in various aspects of, of uh, they, they were invited to come and, and, uh, and be photographed as their secret or hidden or fantasy self. And we got some great people doing some wonderful things. Some of it was very funny. Some, this was a wonderful young woman who said that she was the daughter of a preacher 
and they traveled from town to town. As a kid, she had to be on her best behavior all the time. She was the preacher's daughter, so she felt that she had missed her real childhood, and now as an adult, she wanted to try to capture, recapture her childhood. So she made herself this dinosaur outfit, and that's the way she came to be photographed. And this was our, our uh, cover of the, of the catalog of the show. The show was at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art for about six months, and uh, he is a painter. He paints portraits of people who've been in war, and he interviews them and writes about them. And his secret desire is to live as part of the earth, to live in the woods away from any conflict, away from anything that has to do with, with fight or conflict. So he came totally covered from head to toe with mud and leaves, just like that. And then we had this young guy who, whoops, sorry. <laughs> this young fellow, uh, his grandmother made him this cape when he was born. Uh, he's carried it all his life. He was in the, in, the, uh, in the Navy for six years. He had that cape in his locker in the Navy for six years. Superman. The wonderful people came with these great stories. So, as, and as a photographer, I have street credibility. Uh, my wife and I were, were uh, on our way home from a, uh, an event in Los Angeles a few months ago, walking to the parking lot with Tom Hanks. And a young fellow recognized him, came running up with a camera, said, Mr. Hanks, can I have my picture taken with you? And Tom Hanks said, sure, who's going to take the picture? Now the young guy recognizes me. And he says, oh, Mr. Nimoy, you're a wonderful photographer. Will you take the picture? <laughs> I said, you got it. I took his picture. And, and that young man now has a picture of himself with Tom Hanks taken by Leonard Nimoy. That's not bad. <laughs> Whatever work we do, we're all involved in a creative process. Every day of our lives, we are creative in some way. We get up and make a day out of it in some way. We make creative choices every day, all day long. We are involved in a creative process. And this is, this is a cradle that I have on the wall in my office at home. I see it every day. I heard the solemn whisper of the God of all arts. I shall give you hunger and pain and sleepless nights. Also, beauty and satisfaction known to few, and glimpses of the heavenly life. None of these shall you have continually, and of their coming and going you shall not be foretold." And that pretty much sums up the life of the artist. I am an incurable romantic. I believe in hope, dreams, and decency. I believe in love, tenderness, and kindness. I believe in mankind. I believe in goodness, mercy, and charity. I believe in a universal spirit. I believe in casting bread upon the waters. I am awed by the snow-capped mountains, by the vastness of the oceans. I'm moved by a couple of any age holding hands as they walk through city streets. A living creature in pain makes me shudder with sorrow. A seagull's cry fills me with a sense of mystery. A river or stream can move me to tears. A lake nestling in a valley can bring me peace. I wish for all mankind the sweet, simple joy that we have found together. I know that it will be, and we shall celebrate. We shall taste the wine and the fruit, celebrate the sunset and the sunrise, the cold and the warm, the sounds and the silences and the voices of the children. Celebrate the dreams and hopes 
which have filled the souls of all decent men and women. We shall lift our glasses and toast with tears of joy. My friends, I mean it sincerely when I say to you, may each and every one of you live long and prosper. Thank you. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at vtwproductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn.